If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Napoleon, from the earliest ages, suffered from an absolute plethora of complexes. That was Adam Zamoyski talking about the psychology of Napoleon Bonaparte. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Now, before we get on to today's interview, I've got a couple of quick announcements. First of all, I'd like to tell you about our next event, which is a Kings and Queens weekend taking place in Oxford on the 2nd and 3rd of March. It's two days of talks from expert speakers on a range of monarchs, including Elizabeth I, Robert the Bruce, Henry VIII, Empress Matilda and a whole lot more. Find out more details and book tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events. Meanwhile, I wanted to update you on the latest developments on our website, historyextra.com. If you're a subscriber to BBC History magazine, in either print or digital through the Apple Store or Google Play, then you can now access a 10-year archive of magazine content for free in our online library. Head to historyextra.com forward slash the hyphen library to access this new resource. OK, and now on to today's interview. Our guest for this episode is Adam Zamoyski, a historian and author specialising on Europe in the Age of Revolution. His latest book is a biography of Napoleon Bonaparte, and that was the subject of his discussion with our staff writer Ellie Cawthorn, which took place in his office in London. So today on the podcast I'm joined by Adam Zamoyski, whose latest book is Napoleon, the Man Behind the Myth, which aims to strip away two centuries of mythology about the legendary leader and get at the human underneath. So to start us off, I wonder if you could tell us what you think it is about Napoleon that continues to capture people's imaginations and inspire such strong emotions even 200 years on. It's very difficult to say. I think it's really um, that there are so many myths Uh, And we've all been brought up in rival schools of thought about Napoleon. If you're brought up in this country, in England, you're you're brought up on a whole um, sort of ant heap of of myths and and terrible stories about what a frightful man he was. And, And of course, he's he actually plays a part in the building of this nation as 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 a sort of 
I mean, of, of its vision of itself. It's a bit like, you know, in 1940, we stood alone. It was the same idea. You know, there we were all those years ago, saving Europe from this monster. Um, the French are brought up with, as you can imagine, a completely different myth um, of this great saviour of France and the creator of modern France and so on. But a lot of other countries also... Um, and other nations have their myths about Napoleon. For instance, the Poles still think that he loved them and wanted to recreate Poland. And also they love him because um, Polish arms were allowed to shine in the Napoleonic Wars. The Italians have a sneaking love for him because he started the process of Italian liberation and unification, and so on and so forth. I mean, even in Germany, there there is a cult of him for various reasons. Um, so there are all these extraordinary, um, very strong things which are deeply, deeply embedded in um, the uh, consciousness of uh, most Europeans and as a result uh, of an awful lot of people in the world. Uh, and of course, there is this huge visual epic about Napoleon because he was the great first propagandist. He had prints and um, paintings of himself run up all the time. Um, you know, there are all these wonderful uniforms and he made everything sound and look so epic and so fantastically um, magnificent that, um, you know, people have come to believe in it. Uh, whereas, in fact, a lot of it was pretty tawdry and, frankly, um, at moments in his life, it, it actually teeters on the on the sort of verge of slapstick. I mean, you know, there's there's farce in a lot of it, um, and this this was the the joy of of researching this book was uh, actually getting down to the real descriptions by the people who are there and the accounts, and um, you know, you realise it was uh, in many cases less than glorious. Uh, and interestingly enough, the the one of the great sort of iconic moments, um, both in painting, because there's that famous painting of him, of the crossing the bridge of Arcole. Of course, he never got anywhere near the wretched bridge. And while he was trying to get within 100 yards of it, um, he was knocked off a dike and ended up in a ditch. He nearly drowned. Um, and, and there's so much of it that is actually quite funny. So how, when you began writing this book, did you go about cutting through all of that mythology and getting down to the to the real stuff? Um, well, the first thing is to actually read his letters and those documents which are pretty reliable. And that means taking with a huge pinch of salt most memoirs and certainly some of the mem most quoted memoirs uh, because, of course, they're, they're, the reason they're so quotable is because they're well-tailored little stories. Uh, and you, you soon develop um, a kind of ear for things that are right and things that are wrong. As a historian, you have to do this. You read people's memoirs and all relation. You know, their accounts of, of some event, and you suddenly... You suddenly thought, ah, hang on, I'm not quite buying this. There's a, there's a tone, um, and 
then very often you realize that people are repeating something they've heard or read somewhere else. Uh, so so you, you do develop a kind of sixth sense about that, that sort of thing. So what are some of the most common misconceptions about Napoleon that you, you've had to tackle when you're writing the book? I think the fundamental myth is, or the fundamental image that we're all brought up with, is that he was this extraordinary man who, who was just amazingly successful and did things and was brilliant and it all... You know, he just had to cast his eagle eye over a situation and that was it, he won the battle. And if you actually deconstruct them, um, he he won the battles because he worked very hard at studying the terrain and making sure his men were in the right place at the right time. And mostly because, particularly in the early stages, he was um, pitted against... uh, octogenarian generals um, commanding 18th century armies whose whole ethos was that, you know, if surrounded and outflanked, you sort of put your hands up because, you know, (laughs) war was very much more a a sort of conventional game, you know, Whereas, um, whereas his troops were not, you know, they were volunteers, they were revolutionaries and they were desperate and so they... Um, and they won. Later, he got lazy. His enemies learnt from him. He didn't learn from his own mistakes or from anybody. Uh, and that's why he began making huge mistakes. And um, but he was—I mean, he was a very good general. But still, he wasn't this kind of a, you know, a kind of godlike genius where it just happened. And in many cases, things jolly nearly went wrong or did go terribly wrong. But he was good at at um, covering up and um, starting again. So I think the whole idea of a towering genius and the other thing is the idea that he did it all. You know, everybody is the product of their times and they can only achieve certain things because everybody around in society, the mood of society... Uh, is favourable to those things. And very often, society wants to do something and is just waiting for somebody to say, come on, let's go. And this was very much the case with him. He he himself several times said, if it hadn't been me, it would have been another. The fact was that France was in a mess. It was desperate. There were an awful lot of very, very intelligent, very talented people who desperately wanted France back together again after the revolution and to put it back on the map as a stable and proper state. Uh, But they were all, they'd spent years just chattering about it and arguing and suddenly he turned up and he said, right, well, no, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to do it like this. And suddenly they all rallied round and most of his greatest achievements were in fact group achievements with him acting as the catalyst which is a very interesting and, 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 and brilliant role to play. But we tend to, well, most people tend to forget that. And I think this is, this is um, something I've really sought to bring out. We talk about the Napoleonic Wars and we're brought up with the assumption that he was somehow responsible for the wars. Napoleon was a captain 
when he had his baptism of fire at Toulon, um, trying to liberate a French city uh, from the Brits, the Sardinians, the Neapolitans, and the Spaniards. His next um, engagement was in Italy, where he was fighting against Sardinians and Austrians trying to invade France. His next campaign was again against the Austrians trying to invade France. Um, his next campaign was against Austrians, Russians trying to invade France um, with the help of England. His next one was against the Prussians who declared war on France. And so it went on. And there are only two occasions on which he went into action without actually being attacked first. One was in 1812 when he went to Russia, but arguably he had to because Alexander had put him in an impossible position. And in 1815, when he landed um, from Elba. And again, that was because he knew that he was going to be sent off to another island. And the only way of saving himself from that was to try and reclaim France. Um, and in both cases, treaties had been broken by the other side. So, you know, there was a, a justifiable casus belli. But the real problem is this, that the wars that started in 1792 and carried on until 1815 were nothing to do with Napoleon after France. They were to do with a general um, series of wars which had been going on throughout the 18th century in a kind of Darwinian struggle between uh, the great European powers, uh, all trying to achieve a balance of power, a mythical elusive ba balance of power. And it actually had nothing to do with Napoleon. As Nap I mean, he, he, you know, he, he took part in the wars and he managed to get make France the dominant one for a bit and then lost it all. Uh, but it wasn't, you know, they weren't his wars in that sense. You also argue that he was in some ways what you call the embodiment of his epoch. Could you explain how you came to that idea? We are all products of our time. We are... I mean, to put it at a slightly um, frivolous level, you know, we are almost um, defined by the music we listen to as teenagers. Uh, you know, my generation won't be understood um, by somebody writing about them in 200 years' time unless they can read all about 60s culture, listen to the Stones and the Beatles and the whole thing, and so on. And Napoleon's generation were brought up on the literature of the Enlightenment, but also on, on this, the most important influence of all was, or there were two. One was that they were all brought up on Plutarch's Lives of the Ancient Heroes. This was sort of staple reading in every French school and military academy. And as religion, Catholic religion, had actually been very much taken out of public life, it was replaced by a sort of swing back to a kind of rather gooey version of ancient mythology. So on the one hand, they all began to think that they were Romans and ancient Greeks. And in accordance with that mythology, there was always room for the sort of semi-divine human being who is the great transcendent hero. At the same time, it was the beginnings of the Romantic movement. And while on the one hand he was endlessly 
sort of going on about Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. Uh, on the other hand, he was always reading, um, you know, the wonderful soupy novels of of um, Bernardin de Saint-Pierre. Uh, so there, there was this sentimentalism mixed in with, with heroism. They were all so excited by this that they really did. You do get quotes and letters from the Times uh, where they really, these young men really think that if they just dash into the jaws of death, they will somehow transcend it. And yes, you know, true heroism is the ultimate. Uh, it was kind of, you know, latter-day form of the lust for martyrdom that the Crusaders sought. And it, it was a kind of pseudo-religious um, urge, which was very, very strong. So do you think that's, that is what motivated Napoleon, this desire for glory? Well... Partly, yes, but what really motivated Napoleon was that he was a little boy from a hick town, a smelly little port town in Corsica. He was the son of a pushy snob who wanted to better himself. And Napoleon, from the earliest ages, suffered from an absolute plethora of complexes. He was physically insecure because he was small. He was socially insecure because the minute he went to school in France, he realised, but I think he was probably even, even before he went there because his father was insecure socially because he was a, um, a social climber. Um, he, was, um, he was then sexually insecure because he had sort of problems with girls. And he was intellectually insecure because he'd, he, although he read voraciously, his reading is very sort of haphazard and he missed out on some of the most important texts of the Enlightenment. And from the notes he took, it you can see, because he used to note everything he read, make notes on it, and you can see it, he misunderstood certain books. And he was always showing off afterwards his knowledge of literature, which is a sure mark of um, huge insecurities. Insecure people can never be secure. That's the basic. You know, they can they can achieve you know they can achieve success after success, and yet it's never enough because it it eats away inside of them. And you know when he was emperor, and really in dominant in Europe, he would still say, no, but, you, you know, nobody really rates me. His downfall came because his advisors said, look, make peace now. And he said, I can't make peace because I've just been defeated. He says, you know, your kings, they can, your hereditary kings, they can go home after a defeat and make an ignominious peace. Um, and their subjects will still love them. But mine won't. He was wrong, actually, because they would have been perfectly happy to. But he was obsessed with the fact that he actually, um, he was an upstart. And he actually said, I'm a par for you several times. And so this was, you know, there's nothing worse than insecurity. That um, and, and that was the motive, that was the driving force. It went on and on and on, driving him uh, to somehow achieve something that would finally establish him and mean that, that, that he could then 
sit back and relax. But of course, you never can if you're like that. I like the one bit where it said, oh, he's, he said at one point, oh, I'm just going to do a couple of things and then I'm going to retire and just live out. I know. Side <laughs> and have relaxed. Didn't quite work out that way. Um, so if, as well as his insecurity, if we were to kind of throw out the idea of him being a hero or him being a monster... What kind of man are we left with? Um, if we were to meet Napoleon, what kind of human was he? Um, he was a difficult man. I mean, uh, he was in in some ways. Uh, he could be quite attractive. He could be he could be enormously charming. Um, but the the other problem he had, and I think this is this was, again very important in his downfall, element in his downfall, was that he um, he totally lacked the quality of empathy. And so he took offence very, very easily because he was chippy, but he was utterly incapable of seeing that he could give it. And so every treaty he made was unnecessarily harsh and, you know, demanded... Revenge, his insecurities and his lack of empathy meant that he he was very difficult to be with um, because he was never quite at ease with himself. He was, uh, he, you know, he'd be abrupt. Occasionally, he would relax, and this is interesting. He was always at his best and his most charming with servants, children, um, simple soldiers. Uh, because he, presumably there, he didn't feel insecure, and and he was absolutely sweet with them. And he'd you know he'd play on the floor with children, and um, he could sort of josh servants or soldiers, and um, and and be delightful. Uh, but in society, he was he was always ill at ease, and made others ill at ease as a result. But even people who didn't really like him do admit that he had huge charm and that when he smiled and said, come on, um, let's talk, he, he was absolutely delightful. And so, you know, everybody has nice sides to them. Uh, I think, I, you know, I ended up feeling immensely sorry for this poor fellow because, you know, he... He lived in a world where suddenly he found himself um, propelled into a revolutionary situation where you had to watch your back. And unless you were ahead of everybody else, you would fall behind and probably end up being guillotined. And, and, you know, and so he sort of went on and on. And the further he went up, the more liable he was to being done in. And, of course, what didn't help was... And here, um, I'm afraid, this country... is. <laughs> Um, is is hugely responsible for um, for his you know upward rise and um, his increasing um, intransigence because uh, the British government, which found actually a war with France extremely comfortable because it meant they could um, completely wrong foot the opposition and accuse them of. Um, treachery and, and lack of patriotism every time they tried to oppose the government. And it also meant that they could lock up all the radicals who were um, lobbying for parliamentary reform. Um, and so they, they actually 
well, Britain did very, very well out of the war. We hoovered up all the colonies and um, made a lot of money. Um, spent a lot of money, but made a lot. Um, but the, the terrible thing was that the, the the British government actually not just condoned, but in some cases financed um, the anti-Napoleonic press and cartoons by Rowlandson and others. And these things just absolutely just scratched away at Napoleon's insecurities like you scratch away at a mosquito bite, making him more and more angry and furious and insecure. <laughs> he had no um, real interest in becoming emperor or um, increasing his power. He was all-powerful anyway. Um, and he didn't feel too threatened. Um, but it was when, you know, the, all the coalitions started up again uh, that he began to get paranoid about the whole thing and very, very angry. And, and you know, and Pitt's cabinet, you know, made the thing very personal. They co you know, they, the war was not with France, the war was with Napoleon. And so he thought, right, you know, he was going to get the Brits if it was last thing he did, although he admired the Brits much more than he admired anybody else. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I think it's hard to think of any of the characters from history who are quite so respected but also reviled at the same time. Um... What was it about Napoleon that even even the British, when they were mocking him, they were mocking him because they were afraid of him and they still had respect for his military approach, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, he does polarise people um, in a way that very, very few others do. I mean, I can't think of another figure in history who... Um, who does in the same way, you know, Julius Caesar, well, you know, you think whatever you think of him, but you don't, you know, you don't get frantic about one way or the other or Alexander or something. And there are lots of people who are absolute shits, but you quite admire them, but you don't get into a sort of a stew over it. But with Napoleon, people do. People ask me what I was working on. I say, Napoleon, oh, are you for him or against him? You know, I said, look, I'm a historian, <laughs> you know, <laughs> What do you see as the most significant aspect of Napoleon's legacy or the biggest impact he had? Do you think it was uh, military or do you think it was societal? Oh, definitely societal. Well, he created, he, I say he, he and Cambacérès and all those, you know, extraordinary people he brought together, they created not just modern France, but actually created the template for the modern sort of constitutional and sort of vaguely democratic state, which is actually at the, lies at the basis of 
most Western states and a very great many ones in, in um, all over the world and certainly throughout Europe. And the Napoleonic system grew out of the necessity to replace the divinity, the, the kind of divine authority of monarchy, which had motivated people and um, created social cohesion and had been destroyed by the revolution, to replace it with something that was equally all-embracing and demanded total service and submission and, and received it. And so he created this extraordinary thing called the state. And that is quite a mark to have left on, on the world. You mentioned a bit earlier briefly about um, Napoleon's ultimate downfall, but what do you think was the, was the real reason for that? Himself, his own, his, his own insecurity, his own lack of faith in his own system. Had he believed in himself, he could have said, right, in 1807, after defeating the Russians, leaving only the Brits still at war with him, he could have then said, right, I'm going home. I want to make peace with everybody else. I've got some garrisons here and there. I've got quite a good security system. And that would have really left a Britain with eventually no option to, to make peace. But because he had by then been so enraged, there had been so many red rags flapped in front of him, and he had such chips that he thought, no, I've got to show him. And he kept feeling that he had to achieve a settlement on his own terms, on, on terms that would somehow might make him feel that he, um, that, you know, that he was really copper-bottomed and, <laughs> and he was the real thing. And, and that, that drove him to destruction. There were possibilities for him to compromise at several stages and he just wouldn't because of his insecurity. Ultimately, how should we look back on Napoleon and when you came to the end of writing your book how did you personally feel about him? Um, it's difficult to say I mean you know in many ways he was a nasty little tick but at the same time you know he's a human being and you know he really tried he did things and achieved things um, and there were moments where he really was quite extraordinary. He, he did. There were moments when when he could swing things. He was an extraordinary catalyst, and he was what made some absolutely extraordinary moments happen. And some of them were at, at the worst moments. The um, you know the retreat from Moscow, the crossing of the Berezina. Suddenly, suddenly he really does become rather magnificent, uh, where he manages to to rally this desperate bunch and and achieve um something absolutely extraordinary so yeah he he was he was quite a guy in some ways that was adam zamoyski his book napoleon the man behind the myth is out now published by william collins and you can read a version of this interview in the december issue of bbc history magazine which is still available to purchase as a back issue, a digital edition, and in stores outside the UK. 
Okay, well, that's about all for today, but we will be back on Monday with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.